I'm a bit of a social media prostitute. I sort of have to be because... Because you live in the Karoo. <laughs> yes, 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 what yes, else yes. is there? <laughs> You're already in the ether, for goodness sake. Oh, because I'm a journalist, I have to sort of see what's happening. It is extreme now, the number of different ways you can access the world is just incredible. Mark, hi, good morning. Are you covered in snow? Is it all snowy up there? Are you? Uh, is it Christmas? Are you very excited by the snow? Yeah. I can't tell you how excited we get about snow, you know. And then after about <laughs> after about an hour, when it starts turning into sludge and the tar's a lot more slippery than it is in rain, we go like, yeah. okay, that was fun. That was fun. Let's, let's have back the sun. <laughs> and the sun came back. Yeah. We had snow, if you could call it snow, an attempt at snow, an impersonation of snow. <laughs> and then about an hour later, the sun came around and said, enough of this nonsense. This is Jobert. But I have to say... I'm starting to think that the climate change warnings of decades ago seem to be manifest all over the world in the floods and unpredictable weather and things that we are facing over the world. So we live in a big universe, too, yeah, yeah. and these huge forces are at play. But, Joe, we had a bit of snow, not enough to build a snowman, but enough to take more selfies than I've seen taken. In. People in the streets dripping in snow taking selfies. <laughs> That's what we do here in Joburg. The funny thing about snow is that uh, it just all looks great in the photographs yeah. until you get out into it. And then you suddenly realize, oh, my God, this is, like, really cold. <laughs> yeah, it's cold and, it's, and it gets dirty. It doesn't stay that sprightly little clean spot. Yes, that sprightly yeah, white. No, it doesn't. Yeah, so we've had that. Twitter, they had these sort of comparisons about places in the world, statistics on the world. Yeah. Did you know, for example, that six South African cities are in the top 25 cities with the most pleasant days in a year. So it's just incredible. I mean, South African weather is just a joy. We forget. It's a gift we take for granted. I mean, Johannesburg is reputedly the best weather in the world, and I can see it. The variance around really comfortable is very slim. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, I remember colleagues of mine many decades ago going to work in London. And how was it? I said to them, I said, we can cope with everything. What we can't cope with is getting up in the dark and going to work and coming home in the dark from work. And it isn't compensated by the long summer. So we've got a fabulous climate here, amongst other things. Thank goodness. I sometimes think extreme weather events are some of those things that grab your attention and that if you tally them, that wouldn't actually be a definitive proof of climate change. The definitive proof of climate change is actually the aggregate temperatures, not the extreme weather events. Yeah, 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 yeah. But maybe they are linked to it. No, but maybe these are bumps in a road, which are just showing that a bumpier road is coming. Yes. Okay, I've lost it on that. Let's move on. <laughs> okay, okay. I clearly don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Let's turn to something that you know too much about, and that is the post office. On <laughs> oh, yeah. If you don't mind. Mm. I know this is a very tricky subject for you. I don't want to overburden you with the issue, but to me, I have I have to say, this is very interesting. Yesterday, what happened was that the post office went into business rescue, which was actually seen as preferable to a declaration of insolvency. Just explain to us the difference between the two. What does that give government and the staff and the institution? What are the two different alternatives? We need to think about SAEs in a different box. But generally speaking, business rescue gives you a chance to survive and carry on. If you can come up with an appropriate plan that holds your creditors at bay and keeps the business functioning. So you function, as it were, as a going concern, and that might eventually not work and you'll end up in liquidation, but you get another chance 
and the wolves are kept at bay. In liquidation, the decision is made to realize the assets at best and settle the creditors for however many cents in the rand that asset realization yields. And so the business is over. So in business rescue, it's exactly that. It's an opportunity to rescue the going concern. In liquidation, it's what can you get out of something that you have past judgment has got no chance of survival. Right. Those are the differences. And in that sense, I do support the notion that business rescue is better than liquidation, having had no regard for the numbers necessarily, because there are some big gaps in that analysis. It's almost inconceivable for us not to have a post office for a whole lot of non-commercial reasons, including our relationships with international delivery of things and so on, and payment of social grants and bridges from rural areas to the formal economy and all of those other virtuous things. I think somehow preserving the post office is a virtuous pursuit, but we should be investing in a properly thought through future rather than bailing out the failed past. I see it as the difference. It gives us another chance. Now, what do you have to change when you have another chance? Business rescue practitioners take management control of the business right. while they're figuring out the strategy. And I think what you're going to have to see here is a fundamental change in accepting a viable strategy with viable, competent management. And the worry is that the shortcut to getting to financial survival is always just to cut costs and the biggest cost for your staff. And so you have that consequence, which filters through the economy. It's a terrible state of affairs, to be blunt. It does seem to me that there's a very interesting change of approach on the part of government, because this is now the fourth SOE that has gone into business rescue. Yeah. So presumably, the old solution of suddenly making an announcement that some organization has just got an enormous batch of cash, that process, the tough love that Enoch Gonogbana spoke about in one of the budgets is now very present. But in this particular case, in order to make the case for business rescue, he actually had to come to the party a bit. So quite a chunk of taxpayers' cash is going to go into this institution, which I guess makes the need for a kind of coherent business plan more obvious. Yeah, the last numbers I've seen, and I frankly haven't seen any inside numbers on post office for four years, but the last numbers I've seen was the $2.4 billion previously approved and another $3.8 billion earmarked, which is quite, quite a big sum of money. But the whole is still not fully explained. You know, the total demise in net asset value terms in the post office since 2019 has been well in excess of $10 billion, and the operating losses don't explain that. So there's a hole somehow that needs to be explained and filled. It's an interesting strategy, which might well inadvertently, or for that matter, purposely lead to partial or full privatization, to use the P word, of straight-down entities. It might be the cheapest route for National Treasury to take to invite partners in. And if that is the end result, if the discipline imposed by National Treasury results in the institutions getting to a point where they can't survive without private capital and have to invite it in together with the expertise and capacity that brings, that might be a pretty good result. Yes. It would permanently remove a lot of SOEs off the government balance sheet. Yeah. And that, I think, would be, in some ways, it's a fabulous outcome. But in some ways, there is an argument that there are some institutions that do benefit from government support. I always think a good lesson here is telecom, which technically is government owned. But you know, there was a stage when it went through a terrible crisis and uh, the government owns 25% of telecom, I think. And then there's another 25% which is sitting in the PIC. But it was really 
with extraordinarily skill turned into a functioning institution. New lines of business were discovered. The old ones were closed down. It was tough. But if that's the outcome, then I think we should support it. Yeah, so to take on your first point, I agree. I'm not a supporter of total carte blanche privatization because it will result in a service capacity for very few South Africans who, in any case, have got substitutes available to them in healthcare, security, post, whatever you like. Okay, And so that's not the solution. We have to provide a solution which spans the full breadth of our population's needs. And so it does require a mixture. Right. And one of the elements of design in the telecom deal and other deals that involve the private sector, and in particular involve listed companies, is the capacity for having outcome-based incentive schemes, yes. which drive behavior, believe it or not. Okay. <laughs> yes. and so, Shocking. Yeah, you know, and so you can have this mixture of saying, okay, we're sitting here. It makes a difference what strategic route we follow. It makes a difference which products we shut down and which ones we grow because it's going to reflect in the share price and we're going to have some of that action. Okay, And I'm convinced that one of the solutions to private-public partnerships is the fact that you can incentivize people based on outcomes rather than have civil servants on a fixed pay regardless of performance. Yes, 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 yes. Let's just cast our eyes internationally for a second. I'm just mesmerized by this battle between Threads and Twitter, Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg. I mean, <laughs> you're going to have a cage fight, right? Yeah, yeah, they said that they were going to do a cage fight. And, you know, it's sort of like you've got to you've got to be very careful what kind of, you know, meme you put out there because memes in the modern day turn into reality. <laughs> and so they might or might not do a cage fight, but they might as well be doing a cage fight because now they have competing social media outlets, which yeah. essentially look the same, do the same, are the same. It's just a numbers game between the two of them. It's just amazing. I think the cage fight is going to stay in the ether, okay? Because it's those two risking their rather substantial NAVs on an injury for the sake of whatever. Yeah, look, it's got to be good, hasn't it? Yes. That there's an alternative. Competition is good. It roots out the weaknesses and it hopefully has an impact on the cost of data and all of those kinds of things. So let them fight it out. As long as it doesn't damage the product per se, because two people are having a spat, which one could argue is not entirely immune from their ego. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, and one might say. On the outside, one might say. One might say, yeah. I'm a bit of a social media prostitute. I sort of have to be because... Because uh, you live in the Karoo. <laughs> yes, yes, what yes, else yes. is there? <laughs> <laughs> You're already in the ether, for goodness sake. Oh, because yeah. I'm a journalist and it's yeah. just, uh, you know, it's, I have to sort of see what's happening on all of these. Uh, yeah. So you're not on threads, right? No, I'm not. I'm just on Twitter and that's enough already. I'm not on Facebook or Instagram. All these other things. Because at my age, you need some sleep. Okay. You have to go to bed yes, at some yes, point yes. and switch this little thing off. When I go for my annual medical, they go, okay, let's check your bloods. Let's check this ratio, that ratio. And how much time are you spending on your phones? Okay. And that's no, it is. It's, it is extreme now. The number of different ways you can access the world is just incredible. I find myself in meetings or dinners or any other, and people are looking at their phones. It should be banned. Anyway, let's not get into that debate. I've got teenage children. And they are they are way past that debate. Uh, yeah, I'm a distant second in the social hierarchy of needs that they have. Okay. <laughs> And then the other thing, which is sort of international, sort of local, but I just think it's very interesting is, are you market bullish now about the JSE? 
I just stumbled across somebody, one of the more prominent asset managers, saying that when you look at the JSE now, it's a chocolate box. There, there's almost nothing that doesn't scream at you. I'm underpriced. I need to be bought. I should be bought. <laughs> and the opposite, by the way, if you look overseas, because Apple's just hit $3 trillion valuation. It's sitting on a 35 PE. Can you really invest in, in a company that size anymore? Does it really make sense? Value is a relative thing, not only vis-a-vis previous numbers in the graph, but vis-a-vis other asset classes and choices of that nature. I was in a discussion last night, we were talking about property, and the comparison was being made between Cape Town property and Gauteng property. And they said, you can't sell that damn thing in Gauteng, and you just buy whatever in Cape Town. I said, isn't it the opposite? <laughs> isn't, it, you know, yeah, isn't it gone too far in Cape Town and sagged too much in Gauteng? And so... That's the trick. The trick is now there's a famous enduring saying in markets that bottom pickers get smelly fingers, okay? Right. You, you can't try and pick the bottom, but you have to now, I think, move away from exuberance, is a bad word, to looking for fundamental value that's a combination of yield and capital growth. For example, if you look at things like the NASDAQ, where the weight of technical stocks has made the market index meaningless in their absence or in their prevalence. You know? yeah. And so I think we're into a new world of different asset classes. And I think yield is going to find a place that hasn't been there for a little while. Yeah. But to be honest, Tim, I don't spend enough time on these things to be an expert. And I'm not sure experts exist anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It does seem to me that the old metrics are looking kind of rusty. That's the, the sort of real takeaway is that the techniques that we used to value companies and to draw comparisons. They still have merit. They're still telling you something. They were never clear in the first place. Yeah. No, <laughs> yeah. But now they're less clear. An old man walks into a, a bar of merchant bankers and says, PE multiple, no one buys him a drink. Okay. I mean, no, it's, where, where are you? Where are you from? What is that? Have you not looked at average revenue per kind growth? And they've got a whole new set of terminology. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we're equally befuddled by the new stuff as we might well have been by the old. In the end, there's only one yeah, yeah. thing that matters. Are there more buyers than sellers, mate? You know, it's supply and demand. It's economics 101. And fools beware. What is extraordinary to me is is the is the pessimism-optimism argument. Mm. And I always instinctively default to optimism. And my entire profession instinctively defaults to pessimism. Because pessimism sells in your game. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. It does. No one wants the good news. Clearly why I'm out on a limb. But it is extraordinary to me that at the beginning of the year, people don't remember that long ago. It was like ages, six months, who were the different world. But six months ago, the IMF was absolutely certain we were going to have a global recession. Absolutely certain. Not so much, dudes. It's going to be a sort of average year again. Yeah, the question you have to ask is, okay, who sits on all of these international councils now, if I can call them that? Who's in charge of the World Bank? Who's in charge of the IMF? Who's in charge of all of the reserve banks around the world, all of the, all of the decisions around fundamental monetary policy and so on? And what's their average age and how does that compare to the average consumer age and the consumer habits and other things that are driving the economic currents anyway? And I would argue the gap has never been wider. No, that's true. I would encourage people to be less gloomy 
Yeah. If that doesn't sound ridiculous. Have a go, man. Yeah. Come on. Have a <laughs> yeah. Mark, we have now this new thing where we talk about a number. A number of the day. Yeah. Number of the day. Have you got a number of the day? Yeah. So last week we talked about uh, how far we travel. Okay. Remember, we talked about the 20 billion miles of blah, blah, fish space. And someone wrote me a long note, the net effect of which is, oh, that's nothing, man. You don't realize that sitting on this earth, you're doing a thousand miles per hour. The earth in turn is doing 66,000 miles per hour. And so when you add everything together, as we career through the Milky Way, we as human beings are traveling at no less than about 750,000 kilometers an hour. Okay. <laughs> so, you know, uh, to keep a steady mind in such extravagant speed is difficult enough. The universe is traveling at like 1.2 million miles per hour. No, they don't know. Geez. I don't believe a word of it, Tim. What do these scientists <laughs> know anyway? It's all, we can't disprove them. We're stuck on gravity. The earth is flat. Let's move on. Talking about moving on, let's move on. Mark, nice to chat again. We will talk again next week, as we always do. Yeah, always. Thanks very much, mate. Cheers. Cheers. This show is part of the Africa Podcast Network. The biggest pod network on the continent. For sales inquiries, please contact us at info at africapodcastnetwork.com.